1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Cynthia, I have a question. You live in Massachusetts. As you know. But how long have you lived there?
2: This is kind of hard for even me to believe, but I've lived here for 17 years.
0: Okay. Well, that seems long enough to be able to answer this important question. Okay.
2: What? In your expert opinion, is the state dish of Massachusetts. The state dish? I mean, if I had to go for my own personal food obsession, of course, I would choose oysters. Oh, I'm with you. But that's not exactly a dish. I, I guess, I don't know, I'm um, Boston baked beans or maybe clam chowder? I would have said clam chowder, too. But Matthew Gavin Frank thinks we're both wrong. For him, it's Boston cream pie. Which is also delicious. Matthew wrote a new book called The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. It's a 50-state eating adventure.
0: And for each state dish, he weaves in some history, sometimes some science, and that's what we're all about. So we gave him a call.
3: I, uh, <laughs> I, I think I helped to keep the... The drug companies who manufacture Pepsi AC in in business, although I suspect they're doing just fine. But yeah, a lot of heartburn medication, truly. But
2: first, you're listening to Gastropod. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And before we set
0: off on our great American food road trip, we're going to tell you about this week's sponsors. First of all, Carnivore Club. Carnivore Club is the subscription service that brings exceptional cured meats to your door made by talented American artisans. Get unique finds like bison jerky, venison, and wild boar salami alongside classics like Berkshire prosciutto. You can get $10 off a gift or subscription when you enter the promo code GASTROPOD at
2: checkout. Visit carnivoreclub.co today. This episode of Gastropod is also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code GASTROPOD at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Traveling around America eating everything in sight sounds like my dream job.
0: So how come Matthew Gavin Frank actually ended up doing it?
3: It began with an interrogation of the pasty, which is a foodstuff that is uh, seemingly ubiquitous here in the upper peninsula of Michigan, where I now live. And it's sort of like the calzone of the mines. It struck me as a a strange sort of foodstuff because uh, uh, the original pasty was a savory course and a dessert course encased in the same doughy pastry shell... And it was uh, made as such so the miners can take this two-course meal deep into the earth with them, um, eat it with one hand, a clean hand, and uh, they would kind of eat downward toward their hand through the savory course, which was stewed beef with rutabaga with different spice blends and things, down toward the dessert course, which was usually stewed apples and cinnamon, and it just struck me as kind of a weird food item, and this all of the implication involved with eating downward, um, especially uh, when you're tying that in, at least somewhat metaphorically, to a mining culture where descent is important. Eating downward towards sweetness kind of struck me as interesting, and I, I researched the pasty and all of these shadowy back alleys of upper Midwestern regional history started uh, attending themselves to my engagement of of this food stuff and and i had so much fun writing that piece and i i realized there are 49 more stories to tell and I wondered if I had the stamina um, to to do that. And as it turns out, um, obsession took over, and I did. So yeah, that's how, that's how it started. What was the process?
2: What was the process for choosing a particular state's dish? Did you kind of make a list? Did you take recommendations for folks? Where did they come from?
3: All of that. Um, it was a horribly tough series of choices uh, that I had to make because I'm a very indecisive person by nature. My, My wife, for instance, finds me terribly infuriating to dine with sometimes because if If I'm looking at a menu, it will take... I'll go through these moments of crisis trying to pinpoint actually like what I want to eat. And I I lament the fact that I'm not a a cow with four stomachs. So um, it was tough for me to narrow these choices down to a a singularity. I, I came up with a long list for each state um, of potential food candidates um, of about 10 to 12 per state, and I did some cursory research on each of those, and the the dishes that kind of um, allowed me the excuse to get into some of these strange, often unsung aspects of regional history— those were the dishes that kind of made the short list, and then, after I um, you know narrowed it down to about three, I did actually start contacting folks within each state. And conducting a, an exhaustive series of interviews with folks who were working for museums and historical societies, and um, a seemingly endless string of chefs, and soliciting their opinions and um, you know their uh, anecdotes that they would you know kind of tether to these dishes, and the ones that seemed the most strange and is- interesting, and um, for lack of a better phrase, ripe for exploitation in these essays um, were were the ones that uh, stuck. Choosing is hard enough. Eating everything? That's the real challenge. I tried different versions of, of all of these things because I, I, I was basically um, choosing a single dish and identifying that dish with, with said state, I saw it as my obligation not only to eat all of these dishes, but to actually go to all 50 states. How
2: many of each dish did you have to eat? I mean, did you ever get to the point where you thought, no more whoopie pies?
3: <laughs> oh, never with whoopie pie in Maine, which is um, basically just this giant Oreo? Yeah, it's this um, kind of, you know, this beautiful, sweet and creamy filling surrounded by uh, two baked chocolatey buns. I, I do have this kind of unrepentant sweet tooth so, no, I could not get enough um, whoopie pie. I, I could get enough rat stew in West Virginia, to be honest. It wasn't bad, but I just couldn't comb re- my my kind of personal rat narratives out of uh, um, the, the fact that I was, I was eating rat and in West Virginia, that I actually did only eat once, same thing with the beaver tail stew in in Arkansas, which was good but a little um cartilaginous for my taste. I was very happy to have eaten it, but very glad um when I was finished and so i, I that i you know glad that i didn't have to necessarily re engage it so there were a few things i I ate only once. I, I do want to go on the record, though, saying that um, the rat meat that I ate in uh, West Virginia, it, it really wasn't bad. It it, it tasted like a, a sour pork, I guess, but um, sour in a pleasant way, as if marinated in you know citrus juice. And then what what also helped me to swallow those spoonfuls was some, some research that I did on the eating of rat. And I found out that in old Bordeaux, in, in France, of course, it was once, and by it I mean rat meat, it was once seen as um a, a delicacy reserved for the aristocracy, where vintners in Bordeaux would trap rats And kill them, obviously, and then prepare them with this really lovely sauce of of red wine and shallots and tarragon. And they would actually roast the meat over the broken down Bordeaux wine barrels so those barrels would impart into the meat, you know, traces of oak and Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Petit Verdot and and all of this, and it it was this wonderful kind of highbrow feast, and I became interested in what happened when you took that ingredient, rat, out of one uh, historical and geographical context, Old Bordeaux, and situated it, say, within contemporary West Virginia, how the the narratives changed because now, of course, eating, eating Rat in uh, West Virginia is um, sometimes a, a necessity in in lean times.
0: Wow, that's the first time I've even remotely been tempted to eat rat in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with I'm that. I'm so one. happy
3: I could do that for you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's
0: still a long way to go before I actually sit down to a bowl of it. But yeah, it was the it was a, a step in the right direction. What I mean, I obviously you know picking your favorite is you know like choosing among children but what was your favorite dish can you tell us
3: oh goodness i i suppose i can but i i um i i want to preface it with this i love everything food wise but um I would say maybe my favorite, if I had to choose, it really depends on the day, but it might be the Moravian spice cookies that I ate in North Carolina. Um, North Carolina oddly supports the the largest Moravian population, you know, who are like descendants of the old Bohemian diaspora. And these Moravian spice cookies are these incredibly thin cookies. They're so hard to make and traditionally the folks who make them insist on flattening the dough by hand. They shun the rolling pin and all of this. And the dough it becomes so flat that you could see through it. I mean, you could see light through it. It's almost like a, a piece of tan, stained glass. And they're so delicate to the point where they they just about melt on your tongue when you put them into your mouth. They're they're sort of like the Listerine strip of, of cookies. And so the, there's this incredibly ephemeral, gauzy, delicate texture to them. But they're also... Um, heavy-handedly spiced with spices that you typically, you know, kind of lard pumpkin pie with, clove and nutmeg and cinnamon and and, and all of that. So I love the way this delicate, almost ephemeral texture communed with the heavy-handed spice in the cookie. So it's kind of like light and heavy in one, and was really complex and, and, and,
2: Well, outstanding. The names of the dishes in this book are kind of crazy. There's the butt witch that sounds appetizing, and the spudnut and the applet. Don't forget the loose meat sandwich. Yum. For me, though, these weird names are a huge
3: part of the book's charm. For Matthew, too. Of course, um, we're we're a species who binds our experience to language, right? I mean, that's how we communicate our, our experiences. And so... What we call things um, is actually very, very interesting to me, and how we make things sound adorable. And if we make things sound adorable, maybe we'd be more inclined to eat them, like the applet. And and then sometimes we make things sound, I mean, cutesy and coy, but not so terribly appetizing. Um, The halibut sandwich, for instance, in Alaska is colloquially known as the butt witch. Which, of course, doesn't sound great and and so on. I mean, the the loose meat sandwich that you mentioned actually has a lot of alternative names, not not all of them, you know, appetizing. One of them is the tasty, which is um, kind of adorable and appetizing, but a couple others are the wobble and the slump would you want to eat a sandwich necessarily called the slump so it was um, just kind of fun how you know these names sort sort of evolved and how Regionally speaking, even within, say, Iowa, in a certain region of Iowa, the loose meat is known as the loose meat. In another, it's known as the made right. Um, And again, in another, the tasty, the wobble, the slump.
0: But it's
2: not just the names of these dishes that get argued over. It's how to make them, too. For each state, Matthew included a recipe given to him by someone in that state. It's almost like he's chosen an official version.
3: Yeah, I feel as if all of the choices I <laughs> I made in the book are uh, somewhat controversial and uh, I mean but I uh... I, I hope that folks do argue with the book and have a conversation with the book. A complacent engagement is, isn't necessarily one that I was going for. I, I, I think the book is meant to agitate expectations rather than confirm them, in the hopes that uh, it would inspire people to have a conversation um, with with the text. So, yeah, the. Uh, The recipes, you know, I I, I picked a a particular restaurant or chef in, in each corresponding state to contribute a recipe and... I received a lot of recipes um, for, for each state, but I, I chose the ones that were um, restaurants that were either famous for putting this particular dish out or restaurants that alternatively provided really weird, interesting contemporary twists to you know the standard dish, um, for instance, in, in Minnesota. The state dish that I chose was hot dish, which essentially is this weird catch-all casserole birthed in desperation and still perpetuated oftentimes in in Lutheran church basements where, you know, congregations gather and and feed together. Uh, it was a very, very humble, stick-to-your-ribs, you know, kind of high-fat, high-protein dish that would carry folks through long, tough winters. And uh, these days in Minneapolis, there are a lot of restaurants that are taking this kind of humble amalgam and elevating it to gourmet status. Um, it's funny, the dish is called Hot Dish. There's a, a restaurant in Minneapolis called Hot Dish, H-A-U-T-E, uh, Dish, that does very gourmet versions. And the one that I chose from a restaurant called The Bulldog does a, a very uh, gourmet version of, of Hot Dish. And I was very interested in, in that juxtaposition, I guess, just as an example of a choice that I made um, between the gourmet version um, at the end and the very, very humble original versions of the dish that I engage in the in the chapter itself.
0: We have California rolls, South Carolina perlue, and a New Mexican Christmas to go. So you had better be hungry. But first, we want to tell you about our sponsors for this week's episode. First of all, there's Parachute, an online bedding brand based in Venice Beach, California. They have a whole line of super soft, simple, everyday bedding
2: essentials, from sheets to comforters. Just select the items you want on their easy-to-use website and then get them delivered directly to your front door. What's more, they offer free shipping, free returns, and a 30-night risk-free guarantee. For this episode, Parachute shared some of the science of thread counts.
0: So, thread count is the total number of threads per square inch of fabric, counting both horizontal and vertical threads. And it's physically impossible to fit more than about 400 threads in an inch. But I've seen 1,000 thread count sheets. Well, yes. Turns out manufacturers can game the maths by twisting two thinner threads together. A sheet with 300 of those double-ply threads per inch might be labeled as 600 thread counts but it will be less soft and less strong than a 400-thread count of single-ply. The whole thing is confusing and sort of silly, which is why respected brands like Parachute
2: focus on the quality of the cotton instead. Shop online at parachutehome.com gastropod and receive $25 off your first order by using code GASTROPOD. That's parachutehome.com gastropod and enter GASTROPOD for $25 off at checkout to start sleeping better today.
0: This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace sites look professional designed regardless of your skill level. Their intuitive and easy-to-use tools mean that you can create a beautiful website, portfolio, or e-commerce store online in no time
2: and with no coding required. Meanwhile, here's some e-commerce food history for you. The first food ever ordered online was a large pizza with pepperoni, mushrooms, and extra cheese from Pizza Hut. It was ordered in Santa Cruz, California in 1994 using the extremely clunky and ugly, completely groundbreaking PizzaNet website. It probably took a team of engineers months to build that site. And in the
0: time it took that dude in Santa Cruz to order his pizza online back in 1994, you could probably build a much more elegant pizza ordering website using Squarespace today. Get going right now with a free trial site at Squarespace.com. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GASTROPOD to get 10% off your first purchase.
2: You'll get a free domain if you sign up for a year or two. Thanks, Squarespace, for your support of GASTROPOD. Squarespace, build it beautiful.
0: And now back to the science and history behind America's state dishes. The original inspiration for Matthew Gavin Frank's book was The Michigan Pasty. And the way Matthew tells it, the pasty is a story about a particular place, yes, but also about immigration, because the pasty I know and love is a Cornish pasty. Cornwall is that peninsula beneath Wales, and they actually have the official geographic denomination of origin on the pasty. Sorry, Michigan, yours is a knockoff.
3: Yeah, I mean, the pasty, of course, is famous in Cornwall, which uh, supports... a a pretty serious mining culture, as does the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Copper mining and sulfide mining and, and so on and so forth. And there were a lot of immigrant miners who came to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan from Cornwall. is what tends to happen. Um, The folks who came here from Cornwall, and I say here, meaning the upper peninsula of Michigan, began to couple um, with um, so many of the other immigrant cultures, including um, the Finns, the Austrians, the Croatians, the Italians, the Canadians, the Swedish, and so on. And of course, when, you know, immigrant cultures collide... Uh, like that, food evolves too, and there's a, this this bumping and grinding of, of cuisines that is just so wonderful, and a, a, a new cuisine is kind of birthed out of that, w- which is great, and so the Upper Peninsula pasty, it's very, it, I mean, frankly, it is very similar to the Cornish variety, but in the Upper Peninsula, or the UP, as we call it here, the, the pasty contained Larger chunks of vegetable than did the Cornish variety, a higher ratio of vegetable to meat, once again, because these, of course, were were lean times and folks laboring in somewhat low-paying jobs and the access to meat was really kind of a, a rare privilege. and. The Upper Peninsula pasty, um, for whatever reason, was encased in a thinner crust than the Cornish variety. Maybe it's because we're, we're thinner skinned
2: here. So. We taste immigration in a lot of the dishes that Matthew chose for each state. I was fascinated and, I admit, a little confused by his choice of the California roll for the state of California. I mean, with all the amazing food and agriculture there. But to him, the California roll tells an important story about the state's history.
3: The California roll was a dish created, I I believe, uh, certain sources claimed 1968 by sushi chefs who were part of the Japanese-American diaspora. And they had to begin substituting local California ingredients for typical Japanese ingredients that they couldn't readily find. So the California roll is a a sushi roll that typically includes cucumber and... Imitation crab and avocado. The avocado, I believe, served as a substitute for um, the fatty tuna um, that couldn't readily be found. And this imitation crab, which I mean, which when you really look uh, at what's in it, it's 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 sort of disgusting, was was substituted for for say actual crab. So um, the the imitation crab meat is actually made of Pacific pollock. And the meat of the pollock is shaved as if with a razor from the carcass of the fish. And then these pollock flakes are actually steeped in a a thick gel made from albumin or or egg white and actually spray-painted with pressurized crab esters, this kind of mist that we manipulate to taste like crab. And uh, that sort of... Manipulation um, and notions of imitation and and all of the implications therein in a dish created by the Japanese-American diaspora in in California and and the the history that attended their making of this California role and and the choices that these chefs made within this new place that is California really fascinated me and, and drove the essay.
0: Of course, the history of immigration in the U.S. has a much darker side. The forced immigration of slavery, and Matthew's choice of dish for South Carolina, perlu, gets at some of that.
3: It's related to a lot of different rice dishes, including an Indian biryani, an Italian risotto, a, a Spanish paella, and so on. It's essentially a, a version of that, but um, moved to the the low country of South Carolina, and coupled with the. Ingredients um, that are, are typically found there. Did I mention jambalaya? It's very similar to jambalaya, too. So um, there's, you know, seafood, and I mean, by seafood, it's, it's, it could be shrimp or oyster or clam and a salted meat. And then the, the rice is stewed typically um, with a bit of chicken stock. So um, very, very similar to those dishes.
2: That's the dish itself. But what's interesting about Perlow is that it wouldn't exist without slavery.
3: Oh, well, um, you know, uh, uh, we, and uh, and I'm saying we, but uh, I mean, but yes, we and um, folks in in South Carolina um, solicited, I guess, for, for lack of a better term, slaves, especially from the rice growing regions of Africa, because South Carolina was a a rice growing region as well, and so it basically spoke to the fact that I mean I, I mean the my engagement of connecting um, southern slave culture to what we're eating today, I mean with, without um, the labor of, of these slaves that, that we brought over from the rice growing regions of, of Africa, it would be unlikely um, that Perlie would have become a state dish of of South Carolina.
0: Obviously, there's a lot of history to
3: all of these dishes,
2: but there's some science, too. One of my favorite bits of science is that the famous berry in Oregon, the marionberry, and I've eaten my fair share of marionberry pie. You see it everywhere along the coast there. It was bred specifically for Oregon. It was actually developed in USDA laboratories in 1945 after 11
0: years of testing to locate the perfect climate, Marion County in the Willamette Valley. They advertise this new berry as the Cabernet Sauvignon of blackberries. I'm a fan. I haven't tried it, but it's on my list now. For Georgia, Matthew does the same thing. He picks peach pie, but then he also tells us about the guy who is known as the father of the Georgia peach, Samuel H. Rumpf. Great name. He bred the Georgia peach, the Alberta, in 1875. And with that, he kick-started the state's orchard industry. I like this Rumpf guy because he was also a refrigeration pioneer.
2: He invented a special iced box on wheels for transporting his peaches around the country. Thank you, Mr. Rumpf. I just like saying his name. Now we're going to move up the coast from Georgia to my home state, Maryland. Perhaps not surprisingly to those of you who visited, Matthew chose the blue crab.
3: It's this lovely blue crab um, that is found off of the coast of, of Maryland, and they are... Um, Oftentimes boiled or steamed, and you know, very very simply and well consumed. <laughs> um, uh, so I mean, usually um, the blue crabs that are are trapped in in Maryland, it's it is Maryland state crustacean um, because they are uh, so plentiful there. Traditionally, they're, they're steamed in seawater, maybe a little bit of uh, white vinegar and a little bit of that Old Bay seasoning and then eaten voraciously.
2: Voraciously is true. When I was a kid in elementary school, I went crabbing with a friend who had a house on the Chesapeake Bay and then we had these huge crab feast.
0: That's another thing I haven't eaten. I need to go on a road trip myself. Matthew
2: brought up something about the crab that I'd never heard of before. It comes with its own mustard.
3: It's the, the hepatopancreas. <laughs> it's like the, this kind of iridescent Yellow portion um, to to simplify of the blue crab 's intestinal tracts, um, it was seen in certain points in history and, and by certain cultures as a delicacy, as does kind of um, the lobster 's tamale you know the egg, the egg sacs of the of the lobster and it actually some uh, Maryland biologists or food scientists did some studies on the eating of the blue crab 's mustard and and actually, found that there was some sort of chemical in it that was inducing uh, miscarriage and cases of, of infertility among the women in the Chesapeake Bay area. It was interesting. Uh, a few folks who I, I interviewed for the book actually were, were suffering from instances of that and experienced uh, these these tragedies um, inadvertently. Perhaps I mean, you know, one can't say for sure as a, a result of either eating the mustard itself or actually um, consuming some of the broth in which the blue crab has boiled because um, according to the Maryland Department of Health, the blue crab mustard can contaminate the boiling broth. And uh, they, they believe that the, the liquid should be discarded, even though historically that liquid was, was used and eaten because it was so delicious and flavorful. But oftentimes delicious things can, as, as we all know, um, do bad things to our bodies.
0: The story of the crab is a little bit of a sad one, but it's also one of the native foods that Matthew highlights, the dishes that really offer a taste of the American landscape.
2: In Montana, Matthew writes about elk stew in Arkansas' beaver tail. And in New Mexico, it's Christmas, not the holiday, the dish.
3: You uh, um, basically could go into most any restaurant in New Mexico and um, order a dish, a meat dish most typically. And the uh, server will ask, well, how do you want that, red, green or Christmas? It's it's either a red chili sauce or green chili sauce or both. Christmas, of course, um, being both red and green chili sauces.
0: New Mexico is famous for its chili peppers, especially the hatch green chili.
3: As an indecisive guy, I, I would always go for Christmas. But if I had to have one for the rest of my life, um, I feel like I should answer this. It is. It would be red.
2: Eating Your Way Around America provides both a history and a science lesson. Sometimes, like with Christmas, it's delicious. But sometimes it's not.
3: Oh, yeah. As I wrote in the the preface of the book, I I became more um, interested in the unscrumptious, or at least a different way of thinking about and describing food and its importance. There's a lot of food writing, you know, however wonderful, that tips toward the adjective heavy and and simply wants to engage deliciousness. But I, I felt as if we didn't need another book like that. We have a lot of them. And I guess I was more interested in interrogating deliciousness and scratching at it to see, once again, what what sort of odd regional histories are beneath these surface descriptions.
0: In a way, these dishes are an exercise in nostalgia. But for Matthew, it's also a chance to do some historic preservation.
3: Some of the traditional ways of making these dishes are going the way of the dinosaur. They're, you know, approaching extinction. And a lot of folks have have forgotten how to prepare these dishes according to their original recipes. And so a cultural inheritance um, or something that we potentially could have inherited culturally and gustatorially um, is is going away. I I chose some of these dishes because they are busy disappearing and becoming extinct. As, as a way to kind of perpetuate their narratives and to um, maybe resurrect them, and if not resurrect them in, in actuality, um, just maybe italicize some sort of legacy. And, uh, you know, in Iowa, for instance, the loose meat sandwich, which is basically like a to simplify a sloppy joe without all of that sauce. It was, it was once so ubiquitous in, in Iowa, and now it's actually pretty tough to find.
2: Matthew spent three and a half years taking long road trips around the country.
3: It was all done by car, and it was lonely oftentimes, but edifying. And what really struck me is is how complex... We are as a, a nation, and I always realized that in the abstract, but if, I mean, of course, just getting out there and, and being on the ground and talking to various folks who, who come from various sociocultural backgrounds in this in this country, um, I realized, goodness, I mean, we are, we are complex in ways both beautiful and atrocious, and uh, part of this book was... Uh, I I guess it could serve as an antidote to um, taking these things for granted anymore, even if it compels us to eat with heavier hearts.
0: And really, although he did choose one dish per state, he's very clear. It's not the definitive list. It's just a way of telling a story and starting a conversation.
3: I've had folks uh, when I'm out there on the road reading from from portions of the book tell me that I completely missed the boat with my particular choice and then I've had other folks about the, the same choice tell me that I nailed it as if there were really a boat to miss or as if there were really something to nail. Everybody, of course, has their very own twitchy ways, oftentimes bound to personal memory, by which they would identify the foodstuff typical of, of their state, and... Whenever one makes any sorts of choices uh, in this way, you are going to please certain folks and not please others. But that's okay.
2: What do you listeners all think? What should the state dish be for your home state? If you send us a voice recording to contact at gastropod.com or leave us a voicemail, we'll share
0: your suggestions next time. 310-876-2427. And you can contribute if you're not American, too. Being British has never stopped me from having an opinion. What's your favorite dish from your county or state or region?
2: Before we hung up, we asked Matthew about his own home state. You're Chicago born and bred, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did you grow up eating deep dish pizza?
3: I did grow up eating deep dish pizza. Um, It's funny, I I did not grow up in a food-loving family at all. Basically everything came out of the microwave when I was growing up, and then um, in order to celebrate something, we would usually go out to uh, Gino's East Pizza. That was my family's kind of favorite spot, and it remains my favorite today. I know that's a very um, controversial thing to choose, your your favorite um, purveyor of deep dish pizza in Chicago, but for me it is Gino's East. Um, it may just be braided in with with childhood memory, but but there you have it. But uh, that was always such a treat to get away from this microwaved, soggy stuff that my parents would make. It got to the point where uh, my dad, and he actually dubbed this his specialty. He would microwave my my sister and me omelets. He would sc- scramble eggs in a microwave-safe bowl, and then and then just you know hit start on the microwave. Then this sort of process just yielded these. Horrendous, sort of rubbery wagon wheels of egg that were really difficult to cut. Um, you could hardly even penetrate it with a fork. Um, the the omelet would just kind of shudder against the tines of of the fork. And so, when we would go out to eat, it was either usually Popeye's chicken or Gino's East Pizza. The pizza, which which is the dish I did choose for Illinois, was was quite the treat.
2: It sounds like it kind of saved your culinary childhood. <laughs>
3: yeah, uh, it it did. I guess it, it's funny. I I think because of the fact that I grew up eating such crap basically as a 17 year old after having worked already in restaurant kitchens for a while saw learning to cook is my rebellion and love and prepare and think about food was my teenage rebellion um, instead of you know what playing mailbox baseball and spray painting my initials on the side of a building <laughs> sounds like a much better choice right <laughs> i guess
0: Matthew Gavin Frank's book, The Mad Feast, is out right now. We have links to it online. I was a big fan of his earlier book, too, Preparing the Ghost, which is all about the elusive giant squid.
2: Huge thanks to Matthew for chatting with us. Don't forget, call us or send us a voice memo and tell us your story about your favorite state dish. That's 310-876-2427 or email us a voice memo or MP3 to contact at gastropod.com. If you like the show, you can really help us out by telling your friends about us and by reviewing the show at iTunes or of course clicking the donate button on our website.
0: We'll be back in two weeks with our last show of the season and it's packed with goodness. We've got updates on all of our favorite stories from the year. Don't miss it.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it.